children wait in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelite. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And um, it, it's been a while since I've uh, been here. I was just having my summer break. And um, so we're going to start with, with an easy work. Or maybe not an easy work, but a, but a, quick and easy, a quicker, a shorter work. It won't be 100 pages long. But that's, that's because the way this series is going to work is it's going to be hard to keep to the 100 pages at a time. Uh, narrative in every in every in every in every case and this is going to be an example of it because the first standalone work in this anthology is only 34 pages uh, but that's what I'll talk about today um, but it'll average out still to be about 100 pages per episode now the series I'm going to be doing is is going to be slave narratives and specifically going to be looking at uh, James Albert uh, Gronosaw, uh, we'll look at him first. He was uh, kind of the first uh, slave narrative we have in this Library of America collection. One of the earliest um, of those narratives, first published in 1772. Now, of course, slavery by this point had been ongoing in America for 150 years, but uh, it wasn't until the end of the 18th century, um, especially after Equiano, that we start to see more of the, these narratives. Um, now, most of these in this collection are antebellum uh, U.S., uh, but the first two do have a, a more of an Atlantic perspective. So we'll look at uh, Gronosaw. I think that's how it's pronounced. Then we'll look at Equiano uh, over a couple episodes because that, that one is pretty lengthy. I think it's the longest of all of these. Um, then the Confessions of Nat Turner, which doesn't quite... Well, I guess it does. It is a slave narrative, in, strictly speaking, but it, it's not the same... It's not quite of the same nature as these others. Um, then we'll look at Frederick Douglass, uh, which when we ever get to Frederick Douglass's uh, collection, we can just skip uh, the narrative of life of Frederick Douglass, which was his first published autobiography out of three. Um, then we have William W. Brown, which we already did. Uh, so we'll skip that one. Uh, William Wells Brown. Um, yeah, we, we did that with the William Wells Brown William Wells Brown series, which was probably about a year ago. Uh, then we got Henry Bibb, uh, Sojourner Truth. Then we have the narrative of William and Ellen Craft uh, running a thousand miles for freedom, which is uh, just kind of notable because it is uh, got its own title. It's not just narrative of so and so written by himself or herself, like we get with most of these. Um, but that's an interesting story uh, of a couple. Uh, then we'll have Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, uh, which, of course, is, is by Harriet Jacobs, um, a very important and powerful one. Then J.D. Green, that's what we get. So there's some 12 Years of Slaves not included in here. Uh, unfortunately, it just didn't have space. I suppose it already this volume already comes in at about 1,000 pages. But we got a lot of the highlights of this uh, genre of of the slave narrative. So I'm excited to begin to talk about them. I've, um, of course, studied these for quite a while. 
um, and I've read all of these before, um, but but I'm kind of excited to talk about them with you. So the way I'm kind of thinking moving ahead is when we do these, then I, then I want to jump to uh, Harry Beecher Stowe, uh, which I, to be honest, I've never actually read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, it always strikes me as kind of long, maybe overly sentimental, just really, really long. Um, but, you know, I know the basic ideas of it, but, but never actually read it. So we'll look at her works. Then I think I'll do Black Reconstruction in America. Just, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of cheating here. I know I want to do black writers, and obviously Harry Beecher Stowe is not a black writer, but um, it'll be good to follow up these slave narratives with the fictional account of slavery. Uh, at the same time, uh, to the slave narrative and the novels like Uncle Tom's Cabin both work to raise consciousness about slavery. Um, the one's more famous than, than the other, but... Um, but both are pretty significant. Um, and, and Oh, and then Richard Wright. I'm going to do Richard Wright, too. So we'll, I kind of do this in sort of chronological order. Um, so after Du Bois, do the two volumes on Richard Wright. Uh, and that'll take a few months, obviously, maybe four months, five months. And then we're going to flip to look at uh, Strictly at Women Writers. Again, so that over the next year, we're going to be, we're going to be in this identity. Uh, I'll be... I'll be uh, Involved in some kind of some an identity politics, I guess. But I love doing it. I, I love these. Uh, this is one reason I like American literature so much is the number of voices uh, that we hear from 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 different people um, with different experiences. So uh, about ten episodes, nine or ten uh, on this. Yeah, ten episodes. That, it would have been eleven if I did Williams Wells Brown, but we already looked at that narrative. So uh, that's what's coming ahead if you want to, to read along uh, with me. Some of these are really, really interesting. I, I think running a thousand miles for freedom is, is, is maybe the most fascinating of these. The narrative life of Frederick Douglass, of course, is really impactful. Um, Incidents in Life of Slave Girl, also very, very impactful and, and important in the themes it brings up about sexual harassment and those kinds of things. Um, So anyways, uh, the first two, this Gronasaw and Equiano, are really of, uh, I don't want to say an earlier stage in, a, in, in American slavery because slavery had been around for 150 years, the transatlantic slave trade, but it's really early in the literature of, of slavery by former slaves. Um, and they're both got a much more Atlantic perspective they're not really as, as tied like the rest of these are tied very much to the US experience and especially the antebellum American experience which of course is shaped by um, abolitionism and shaped by the struggle against slavery formally by by slaves who escaped or were born free and then coming to the Civil War it, you know the plethora of, of slave narratives uh, comes out not long before the Civil War breaks out. Uh, I think uh, Frederick Douglass was 1845, so you know, only 15 years or so before the Civil War breaks out. So you get a bunch of them in the 1840s and 1850s, especially the 1850s. Um, so it's kind of condensed. But these two are of, of kind of an earlier era, like before the American Revolution even. Equiano, well, Equiano is 89, so after. But, but they're 
much more about the experience of like coming to America, right? So the, the Middle Passage is a part of those stories. And they're what like, a, is, it, is it Ira Berlin, the historian who wrote Generations of Captivity? He would have called these the, the charter generation of, of slaves, the ones who, you know, had a foot in Africa culturally, got, were part of the Atlantic world, often traveled a lot, often spoke different languages, took on a, a, a very mixed identity, uh, transnational multicultural identity, often involved like identity changes in their life as they, they went from Africa to other, um, other lives. So that's, that's a key feature of both of their narratives. Um, the, Ameri the, the African Americans we get, the ones born in America, they're, they're really much more rooted in that American experience and that African American identity. So anyways, now this, this first narrative is, is kind of odd, this Cronus style, the one I'm going to look at today, in part because it's, it's not very much uh, against slavery. Now the full name of his narrative is the narrative of the most remarkable particu particulars in the life of James Albert Ukasawa Gronisau. Right. Um, now he does talk about the mistreatment he experienced in slavery. It's not his theme, though. Um, uh, it's not the major theme here. Um, to take a quote from towards the end of this account, uh, this, remember this is very short. It's only like a it takes less than an hour to read. Uh, he, he said he write. We met a great deal of ill treatment after this and found it very difficult to live. We could scarcely get work to do, and we were obliged to pawn our clothes. We were ready to sink under our troubles. So there is suffering and pain here, but this is much more an account of like Christianization uh, than, than anything else. And, and in that sense, it really is about the cultural shift that comes from people thrust out of their cultural milieu, their environment, and forced to adapt to, to new ways of life. Um, now, he calls himself an African prince here. Um, I don't know how much of that is, is drawn from reality, but... But anyways, um, it is the first slave narrative published in English. There were others, I think, published in like Spanish or Dutch or, or other European languages. Um, but it really is much more a story presented to the public as not even as a, like an anti-slavery tract. Um, and maybe that speaks to the significance of the American Revolution in opening up a discourse about the end of slavery. Um, I, I kind of stand by that. I think some people like to talk about the conservatism of the American Revolution, and it's there. That's part of it, but it's also quite radical, right? That's the whole Gordon Woods' whole point is that it opened up uh, radical potentialities, right? Sean Willens is the rise of the American democracy, right? Yeah, you go from republicanism to democracy in a really rapid form, and that that meant having discussions about slavery, women's rights, things like that. Um, it's it's not it's it's not an anti-slavery track though, even though there's hints of of of, of anti-slavery and that his sufferings are acknowledged. Um, but they existed really to clarify his religious transformation, uh, being lifted out of the darkness of idolatry and superstition in Africa into Christianity, and this presented as basically a good thing. So this is a hard one to talk about because of course that is the argument given by the pro-slavery voices. One of the defenses of slavery is. You're better off as a slave in America than free in Africa because of uh, you're not being exposed to Christianity. Right? You're being left in the darkness right, of, of, 
of, of idolatry. And of course, remember many people in Africa were Christian and many people in Africa were, were Muslim. So this, this argument doesn't make much sense for them. Of course, many uh, people who endured the Middle Passions were Islamic and, and brought Islam to America. But that was the argument. And is he feeding into that? I, I don't want to say that about him. I mean, I, we don't know that much about him. We basically know what's in this book. Uh, I could not find much about him outside of, of, of what's in this book. So, you know, what he is, what his own perspective is. Is he, you know, I, I think we got to take this honestly. There's no good reason to ignore it. Um, if we look at like the long title, you know how 18th century books have these long titles. Um, a narrative of the most remarkable particulars in the life of James Albert Ukasawa Gronasau, an African prince related to by, him, by himself. And then the dedication is to the right honorable Countess of Huntington. This narrative of my life and of God's dealings, wonderful dealings with me is through her ladyship's permission, most hum humbly dedicated by her ladyship's most obliged and obedient servant, James Albert. So this... Um, his voice is being allowed through the boon of, of, of this noble woman who's, who's allowing him to publish his, his account. Maybe that shapes how he tells the story, but I don't know. There is a Walter Shirley who writes a preface to this account, which basically has this view that, oh, look how great uh, freedom from slavery or, or freedom from Africa is, even if it's if it's brought through slavery. Um, slavery is not really intensely interrogated here. It's just a matter of fact, for the most part. And anyways, this guy Shirley, who again, I don't know really anything about him. He writes, in what manner will God deal with these benighted parts of the world where the gospel of Jesus Christ has never reached it? Now it appears from the experience of this remarkable person that God does not save without the knowledge of the truth, but with respect to those who hath foreknown, though born under every outward disadvantage and in regions of grossest darkness and ignorance. Um, there's, he also complains about the deists here, the deists who he associates with the infidels. He says, We're, this is for Christians. This is for Christian readers. I trust the Christian reader will easily discern an all-wise and omnipotent appointment and direction in these movements. He belonged to the Redeemer, our lost sinner. and He was to purchase of this cross, and therefore our Lord undertook to bring him by a way that he knew not out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what you're getting here. Uh, that's the opinion of the editor. Um, and it's hard not to, at least on the surface, say this basic view is shared by Gronasau, who starts his narrative not with his captivity, but his feelings that the traditional religious beliefs he was born with were misguided. Um, and that's different than like Equiano, who, who has similar conversions and transitions, but he's not like spitting on Africa. Um, it it kind of does make me think of who's the, who's the other African who, uh, the poet. Phyllis Wheatley, she writes that famous poem where it's like, was, like, was divine beneficence that brought me from, from Africa, right? Because I can become a Christian. Now, her, her poetry is a little bit more, you know, of two minds about slavery, but it also has that narrative of Africa being 
a place to to kind of mature from, um, to grow out of, because uh, slavery allowed that to, to happen. Right. So it, that's what makes this hard to talk about without feeling you're gonna like fall into those pro-slavery arguments. But it's the same when you read Phyllis Wheatley, I suppose. So you just gotta take it as it is. Now, Gronesal was a fully Atlantic figure. I think that's one thing interesting about him. He'd been born in Africa, worked as a slave in Barbados, uh, and in New York, he was a sailor. He finally settled in England. He's barely American, so he probably shouldn't be in this series, but he's in the book, so we'll, we'll, we'll take him. I mean, Equiano, too. It's not really a very, like, it's not like a U.S. figure. Uh, but Gronesal is, is, is a very much a working-class figure, like Equiano. But more so than Equiano, I think we got a lot here about struggling to survive, constantly looking for work to support his family. Um, it seems that his story was orally told to several people, including Calvinist ministers in Holland. And so, although this, like other slave narratives, emphasizes the written by himself, right? Um, here, the title actually is related by himself. I believe if I can find it. Yeah, related by himself. That doesn't seem to have the same punches like Equiano's, where he writes, written by himself. And Frederick Douglass, written by himself. Uh, that's uh, that's there throughout these slave narratives. This is related by himself. So um, he seems to have told others, and then they wrote it down. And so does that translation of the oral tradition to the written word then allowed the editors, I think, to, to, to shape and craft the delivery of the message, right? At least that's one concern we might have as readers of this of this account. Um, certainly Douglas, Bibbs, Equiano, Harry Jacobs uh, really emphasize written by herself or himself. Now, Gronesau was literate. He, he could have written this himself. Um, now, like Equiano, we see claims of being an African prince before being sold into slavery. I... We, I mean, now scholars have a lot of, cast a lot of doubt on Equiano's past. I think I've seen some people who argue he's not even like an African. He's just a, he was a, some kind of Creole, African-American or Atlantic figure. Um, Gronosau, uh, we, we don't really know much about him. He was, would have been slightly older when taken into slavery than Equiano. So maybe he had more accurate memories of Africa. I think there's more reason... Personally, I, I don't really want to doubt either of these people being born in Africa, but Gronisau was older, a little bit, a few years older than Equiano was still a boy, young boy when he was uh, sold into slavery. But anyways, uh, according to the narrative, Gronisau was the grandson of a king around Lake Chad, which is like kind, of, kind of inland, but the way the slave trade worked within Africa was you had these slaving, slave trading states on the coast, that, you know, projected their power around them to get slaves. And you, the, the so-called gun-slave cycle, which also has been kind of criticized by scholars over time. But the basic picture there is, is fine. It, it gives agency to Africans as participants in the slave trade. So it's, it, you know, even if it seems like they're kind of caught in this cycle of, of needing guns to defend themselves or to project their power in order to get slaves in order to, to sell slaves to the Europeans to get more guns, right? Um, but anyways, a Dutch trader visited this area uh, around Lake Ch Chad. Uh, now, that was an Islamic area by this point, I think, right? Wasn't it? 
Um, it's kind of in the Sahara. But anyways, he was invited to see the Gold Coast, and he went there. He followed this trader. It kind of seems like he may have been conned or tricked into it because not long after he becomes a slave, but, but there's actually a legal process that goes through, which wasn't uncommon for getting people into slavery within Africa. But he was eager to see the ships, which he calls floating cities with wings, um, and the vibrant commercial economy on the coast. And so that's, that's kind of fun to see. Um, but while he's there, he's taken for a spy and then sentenced to death. And then this is how it was often done. People would be, like, in fact, actually, the number of punishable offenses or offenses that could be punished by enslavement increased in West African states as they got more connected with the Europeans and, and needed slaves to sell to them. So it's like, well, we can just say, you know, looking cross-eyed at the at a, at a aristocrat, that's 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 sentence that's a death sentence which will commute to enslavement because we're so so nice. That's kind of what happens to growing this out here. Now, as a slave, Gronisau was sold in Barbados and then brought to New York. Now, the thing about New York, if we remember from Peter Linebaugh and Marcus Redeker's work, um, I forget where I first saw this. I think it's in the Many-Headed Hydra, where New York was like the port of last resort. So slave traders first went to the Caribbean and then sold slaves that were most highly desirable. And what, what's a desirable slave? I guess young, healthy and not likely to cause trouble, right? And who do you sell? If you're selling slaves to slave traders in the Caribbean, where of course you have high death rates and a huge demand for slavery, if you're selling to slave traders there, it's most likely because the slaves there, the slaves that are being sold are trouble, rebellious, disobedient in some way. So they, they would be, some would be sold and then they'd go on to another Caribbean port on and on and eventually to like Charleston and then eventually to New York. So the slaves still on the boat, by the time you got to New York, um, thinking of a, of a slave voyage, right? Because it wasn't, they usually didn't just go to one port and unload all the people. They would sell a handful at different ports throughout the Caribbean and eventually make your way to New York. So who's left on the ship by that point are the most rebellious, right? So this is an explanation given by Peter Lambaugh and Marcus Redeker about why the New York... New York created the slave revolt of 1741. And this is, of course, written 30 years after that, when uh, slavery was kind of changed in, in, in New York, of course. But anyways, that's just, when you think of New York and slavery, I always think of that, 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 that description of the 1741 plot in, um, in that book. Now, he was later sold to a Dutch minister who eventually freed Gronisau in his will. Um, but he continued to serve the family. Um, and it's sort of at this point that his troubles begin. Um, now, he doesn't say anything explicitly against slavery or, or express much regret at his circumstance as a slave, which is, makes this unique among all of these. Everyone else is very clear slavery sucks and they want slavery to end. Um, it's more his post-enslavement poverty that is most troubling. So if we go back to the quote I read at the beginning here, that's talking about his post-enslavement impoverishment. But there it's not about, oh, he's not saying it's better off under slaves. He's saying under slavery. He's saying, I was tested as a Christian through, through, through turmoil, through struggling. I mean, that's the point here. 
Um, one approach to this slave narrative is to stress the importance of slavery and the exploitation of working people in the Atlantic, the, the Limbaugh-Redeker, many-headed-hydra approach, approach. But at the same time, without forgetting that exploitation was broad for, for many different social groups in the Atlantic, right? Again, that makes us think of Limbaugh and Redeker, that you know, women, indigenous people, um, slaves, indentured servants, and others. I mean, everyone was being kind of horribly exploited in the Atlantic world at this time, especially in the Americas, where there was this high demand for labor, so coercion had to be used throughout. This was insurgent capitalism, imposing horrendous work regimes on many people, terrible poverty on those who aren't being coerced into labor, and desperation on the free and enslaved alike. Gronosau may have experienced the worst of all this as a free man, um, but that may be outside the norm of, you know, most slaves were being worked to death in the Caribbean plantations. So the context here, we can't forget, and this, this narrative doesn't do anything to undermine our view on that. It's just his personal narrative is one of spiritual redemption or spiritual rebirth. Um, it does speak to the broader experience of working class oppression, though, and I, and I think that's some way we can, one way we can look at this, we don't want to focus on the religious aspect. Um, another way to approach this read uh, is in line with like Mary Rowlandson's account of her captivity. It may, really makes you think of that in a way. Uh, I don't know if you've read that. Many people have, but it's, it's, it's a captivity narrative of a New England woman who's captured by Indians during Metacom's war, right? Uh, King Phil's war. In both of these works, Gronisau and Mary Rowlandson, suffering, death of loved ones, and hunger are presented as the will of God. A lesson speaking to God's goodness and his ultimate plan. Uh, we have it here, quote, The boundless goodness of God to me has been so great that with the most humble gratitude I desire to prostrate myself before him, and I have been wonderfully supported in every affliction. My God never left me. I perceive light still through the thickest darkness. Even at the death of his child, uh, which takes place in the short narrative, and the constant struggles for basic survival, it's presented all with the thanks of God. At one point, he expresses more hostility to the idea of his wife working on the Sabbath, uh, which is an interesting kind of, of course, it's religious, but it's also gendered politics. Women, wives working, wife not working, I should say, was a sign of, of rising into that middle class, that emerging middle class. Um, which is why you saw, and after slavery ended, you saw many um, former slaves work quite hard to ensure that their wives, who were forced to work under slavery, could be homemakers. I mean, that's the gender politics, right, of white America. And of course, that's the same culture, though, that black Americans came out of. Maybe we'll get to that in one of these later slave narratives. Um, but even like that is more of an offense to him than the economic exploitation that, that, that formed the narrative of his life. Um, Gronosau's experience on a privateer uh, is, is also interesting to some readers, I suppose. At the, at, it happens at the end of his enslavement. Um, it does cause us to question the belief that even people like me have sometimes fallen into that the ship... The, the ship, like the pirate people, like, like the people who are interested in the pirates, they like to say the ship was a space of solidarity for a transnational working class. Oh, look at the democracy on the pirate ship. 
Um, but he speaks more of persecution by fellow sailors during his time on a privateer than he does about either of his masters or capitalism. So his, his kind of victimhood is expressed through his fellow workers or his resentment towards how his fellow workers treat him than capitalism or slavery. Gronosau likely wanted his reader to see his life as a morality tale, narrating the spiritual darkness of his birth in Africa and his coming to know Christ. Slavery is merely a backdrop to the story. It actually only covers seven out of 30 pages that make up this, this narrative. In this sense, it's really a far cry from the abolitionist narratives of the 19th century. And more importantly, for our purposes, it's a very different, it's very different rather work by the politically conscious Equiano. That his narrative clearly is an anti-slavery tract, even though in many ways it looks, it, it smells like this story in a lot of ways. Young boy, you know, enslaved in Africa, you know, freed by a master, uh, European context, uh, working on ships, a lot of similarities. But he comes out of that, we need to end slavery. Gronosau doesn't get anywhere near there. So... Um, yeah, I guess that's, I've been going on for a half an hour, about some of my episodes are a half hour and they're about much longer chunks of text. So, um, that, that's fine, but I will spend probably two episodes on it. We'll see if I have enough to say. Um, yeah, I think, I think it needs two episodes. Um, cause yeah, it's a full 200 pages. So we'll do a full two episodes on Equiano. Um, if you haven't read that, it's a great one, so pick it up and read it. And in a few days, I'll give you my thoughts on that book. So anyways, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. It looks like the band that Moses led. Gods are gonna trouble the